I listen because I'm friends with you and because I consider myself a podcast connoisseur. Um, because I've been I've been listening to podcasts forever, but it's ah. it's genuinely a really good podcast. Like it's it's like it's like I I don't know that I ever would have like it's hard for me to like add more podcasts to my queue. I've got my I cup run up yeah, over yeah. with podcasts. Um, but it's so I don't know that I would have like if someone recommended to me like yeah I don't know but now that I've listened to it I'm like oh man these are good stories. I thought of two things we could talk about. Of course. Uh, one was identity because I think that's a very fascinating topic of because you know you meet people and like like I would not tell someone about my job because that's like meh I don't know like I don't do anything that cool or anything that like takes any training um you know and i would talk about other things so i'd be curious about how you take that the other thing that's very different that i thought would be fun to talk about is the thing you shouldn't say you got the patient that like you know you can't say the thing that's in your mind because they're asking you some ridiculous question they're doubting like the years and years of study and toil that you went through to earn your degree to practice and they're like, yeah, well, I, I read this on the internet. Like, really? <laughs> really? You know more than me? We saw a lot of this during the pandemic. A lot of folks that were like, well, I read online. Like, yeah, I'm sure you know more than epidemiologists and like anyone that's dedicated yeah. their life to mm-hmm. to this research. I'm sure you know more. I did. I did my research, <laughs> which means they watched a video on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's so, why I go to a doctor so I don't have to do research because I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's hard to look at things objectively unless you know the basis of what it's talking about or you've spent a lot of time with that. So let, let's, let's jump in. I think those are both good questions. And when you're talking about identity, the thing I was thinking about most is the, the current generation and the upcoming generation of doctors their identity doctor is part of their identity, but it's not their full identity. The doctors that I worked with that they were old school doctors, their family members would sometimes call them doc or doctor. People around town would call them, Hey doc, how are you? And just, that was who they were. And I saw some of these older generation doctors have a hard time retiring because they were doctors, they were surgeons, they were physicians. They didn't really know who they were unless they retired. One of the doctors I worked with was in his mid seventies and had no intention of retiring at all until he had a little uh, TIA. So a mini stroke is what some people call those. So you get the stroke symptoms, but it resolves quick enough that you don't end up with any long-term deficits. And that was about 75 or 76. And then he decided, well, maybe it's time to retire. So identity is interesting because for I think a lot of the older surgeons, that's who they were first. If you ask them who they were, they'd say, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon. Oh, I'm also married and I have some kids. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a long second, a little bit further down the line. I think the current generation is a lot more, I'm a physician, I'm a surgeon, but that's kind of like second or third on their list. If somebody says, hey, tell me about yourself, like, oh, I'm married, been married for this long, I have two kids. What do you do for work? Oh, I'm a doctor or a surgeon. I, I think that's the way the trend's going. Well, a lot of us don't realize that those old school guys, they called them residents because they lived at the hospital. 
that's why it was called a residency is because they never left. And so I think that that identity probably prescribed to the older generation where you weren't even allowed to have an identity. And in a lot of those programs, you weren't allowed to be married because you were living at the hospital. So it's morphed over time um, and become more, uh, I guess, relaxed, not as intense, even though it's still an incredibly intense process to train to be a physician. It's not like it used to be. Is that partly just a general cultural change that, because that seems like your parents, my parents, that was more like dad works, brings home the money, brings home the bacon, mom takes care of the kid, takes care of the kids, takes care of the house. Mm-hmm. So that seems that I'm sure there's that part of it too. And that's obviously change. We're changing and realizing we want more out of life than just to punch it, you know, punch the clock and get a paycheck and then retire. Exactly. I, I think it's shown itself in most professions and careers out there. It's been a little bit more obvious in something like being a physician because it used to be such a status symbol. status symbol identity that people knew about you and certain things were just still con- considered jobs and most physicians what when they talk about being a physician or a doctor they don't talk about it as being a job it's a calling it's sometimes they'll use the word career but even within the community of doctors we kind of put it on a higher level when i was training with my mentor and fellowship he just said, I just can't imagine waking up and going to a job every day where I didn't help people, where I didn't realize and know that I was having an impact on people's lives. And I think Gen Z right now, they want their jobs to matter and they're willing to kind of jump from job to job to job, not only for their own well-being, but they want to do something that they think is helping the world. And that's at least something that we have as doctors and physicians is you know, at the end of the day, I can look back just today and know who I helped, who needed me, how I made a positive impact in multiple people's lives. And that's just every single day. So having a job that really matters is important. So I don't think that my identity is solely a physician or a surgeon, but it's a large part of my identity. But I, you know, like when I'm with friends, I'm not the doctor as much as I like to tell stories and I probably tell too many medical stories just in my friend groups, I, I, I have a lot of other interests. And so it's not the main thing that makes up my identity. It's hard for it not to be your identity when it takes up so much time to achieve, you know, that from the outside looking in, it's quite the, the accomplishment to achieve. So I um, can understand if some people put it on a little bit, do put it on a higher pedestal because it's not like, yeah, I went to college and I have a job. It's great. But I didn't do, you know, 13 years of postgraduate training to do what I do. So you can see how it can get real wrapped up in, you know, someone's identity if they allow it to, I guess. Well, and we can't, we can't really make lateral moves as doctors. If you, even within the medical field, if you're a nurse and you don't like being a cardiac ICU nurse like my sister was for a while, you can make a lateral move to be a like OB nurse. You can be in pediatrics. You can decide to do home health stuff. You can change much more easily. Physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners, same thing. 
But once you've kind of picked your specialty as a surgeon or as a doctor, you're locked in unless you go back and retrain for three to seven years. So I think that also becomes wrapped up in our identity because we don't get to change. If you choose that as your career and you stay working as a doctor, that's what your career is. Like all I do is this specific thing. I don't deliver babies. I don't get to do neurosurgery. Once you pick a specialty or path, you give up a lot of other things. You're telling me that Grey's Anatomy is not an accurate depiction <laughs> of how they train doctors. <laughs> Have you ever watched sure Grey's they consult. They probably consult some doctors to have some <laughs> semblance of accuracy to the medical profession. They consult and then they ignore. So, <laughs> it, I mean, not that, not that people expect it to be completely accurate, but I always think it's funny when they're on a neurosurgery rotation and then they're on like a cardiothoracic rotation and then they're in the ER, like doing surgery on people in the ER and they just go everywhere and do everything. I loved house too. These doctors were taking their own specimens to the lab. They're looking at everything underneath the microscope themselves. And that's, that's one thing that's definitely changed with medicine is we are all very specialized and there's just certain things you don't do anymore unless that's what you do every single day. Is your day-to-day more mundane like you're what you're telling me is if they wanted to make a tv show about your day-to-day it'd be the most boring tv show no like it's still really interesting because we still are dealing with people in these interesting situations even that you know like that's what i'm trying to do like the stories we have that are real are crazier than some of the stuff that's on tv there's probably less sex and (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) um Not that there wasn't some sleeping around amongst some of the residents and medical students. And there's always the scandal of the medical student that slept with one of the head doctors in one of the programs or, you know, slept with a senior resident while they were on the rotation. But a little less sex than they show in those shows. But it's still interesting. I mean, there's life and death decisions. There's strong emotions. There's intense moments in the OR. So I I think it's even with things being medically accurate, I still think it's a really interesting thing to do. Well, one of the interesting things about some of the surgeries that you do is a lot of time your patients are awake. Yeah, I was doing a surgery on Monday. Patient was talking to us the whole time and we were talking about her family and her parents and how much she loves her siblings. And I got to know about her six siblings and we just chatted the whole time. So my patients are sometimes awake during my surgeries. I try to make them as comfortable as possible. And they obviously are because we're just chatting about their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that's not like when you go to the dentist and the dentist is trying to chat you up and like, I can't have a conversation. <laughs> Your hands are in my mouth. Like, tell me a story. Like, I'm just going to be a passive listener. That's all. Yeah. I can't respond. So there's certain and I don't, moments. I don't know. Like, I, I just, I got, um, I got snipped uh, a year ago. Uh-huh. Um, cause we're like, yeah, we don't want, we don't want any more happy accidents in our home. <laughs> and, and like, I was like, it was, it was traumatic. Like I was just, my eyes were closed <laughs> shut. I was like shaking. <laughs> like, uh, you wouldn't want to have a conversation with me. I'd just be worried if, if you're messing with my eyes, like, I don't want to have a conversation. I want you to be laser focused on my eyes like i don't want you sticking a needle somewhere it's not supposed to be you don't need to know about my wife and kids you don't care about me just make sure i can see when i leave this place that's all i care about (laughs) so 
I've told multiple patients this because sometimes people will be kind of asleep and then they'll wake up a little bit and they'll, they'll hear us chatting. And I say, the very best thing you can hear during your surgery is me chatting comfortably with either people in the room or if you're awake with you, because it means the surgery is routine. Like nothing should be exciting. If you are in a surgery and everything's dead silent, that's when you should be nervous because that means like, oh no, things aren't going smoothly. You know, everybody's sort of like people that are lost and they turn off the radio and they're looking for things. If it's silent, things are usually going bad. Some surgeons just like operating in silence. That's fine. But I have music going. I'm talking to people because what I do, I do every single day and I'm good at it. And so I'm relaxed. I'm not stressed at all. I'm talking, sewing. It's just a very nice, smooth procedure. But I give patients the option. So when I'm in a consult with a patient, I get a gauge of what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with. And there's different surgeries I do. There's certain surgeries I do you're asleep for. Like no questions asked. If I'm doing bone work or if I'm like doing a more aggressive surgery, like removing an eye, which is a pretty gruesome thing to do to somebody, I could theoretically do that under local anesthesia. But psychologically, there's no reason to do that. I put people to sleep. For a blepharoplasty where I'm removing skin from the eye. You're removing skin from the eyelid. Yeah, from the eyelid. The yeah. Upper eyelid. Yeah, so the upper eyelid. When I'm doing that surgery. Get it right, Doc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For us, for us, everyone I, else. I never misspeak. What are you talking about? <laughs> I always say exactly what I mean. <laughs> but if, if I'm doing that, I, I gauge and I say, you know, like a lot of these ones I do with people fully awake with just some local anesthesia and you're numb and you're comfortable. Some people have a little bit of nerves. I give you a little bit of Xanax. I have laughing gas. I have this little like tab that dissolves. It just reduces your pain. You can do IV anesthesia, what some people call like twilight sleep, where you're mostly asleep, but you can kind of be aware sometimes, or there's general anesthesia. So certain surgeries, I say, you have all the options. I want you to be comfortable. And then you get to pick the level of anesthesia. And I'll give you a good idea where I'll say, hey, like 80, 90% of people that do this surgery, do it fully awake. No, no questions asked. It's really easy. Some other things I say, hey, you could do this kind of awake, but if it was me, I'd want to be asleep. So I try to give people a good gauge of what they can tolerate, what they can't. But uh, when you're getting snipped, that vasectomy, I, I think I'd have my eyes closed too if I was the patient. I, I wouldn't want to see anything. <laughs> It was, it was terrible. Well, and I, I opted for no drugs before because I wanted to be able to drive myself to and from because I didn't want to, like, mm -hmm. we just had the baby and I was trying to, trying to, I was doing it in December, trying to fit it in that, that calendar year to, to max oh, out the insurance claims, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, you made me think of something else. You said, like, you've got confidence in what you do. And like, I'm in a very different field where how confident I am in what I do, like ask me, like it could change from minute to minute or day to day. So I'm in sales and it's like, yeah, if I've just sold some deals, then I'm feeling pretty, pretty good about myself. But if I haven't, then I'm, I've got some heavy imposter syndrome. Do you ever have imposter mm -hmm. syndrome where you're like, oh, damn, like, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Or like, you know, does that ever happen to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> So, but I have a really good answer because most doctors I know don't have imposter syndrome. I hear other people in other professions talk about imposter syndrome. I hear celebrities talk about imposter syndrome, but for being a doctor, there's a very difficult, but well-prescribed path to get where we are. 
and there are tests, there's exams, every step is difficult. And so when you pass each step, you know that stuff and you know that people that analyze doctors and train doctors are evaluating you. And so when you pass your board exams, when you finish your residency, when you have so many surgeries being observed and getting feedback on everything, you know whether you're capable or not. So each step you get that stamp of approval, like, yes, you have accomplished what we want you to do and you know what you need to. So I don't think we run into the imposter syndrome as much in medicine because we have all these checks and balances to get where we're supposed to be. And when you look at it, the other thing too, is I did thousands of surgeries with direct observation and I was there to train and I was there to learn. And these doctors aren't there to be my friend or to be nice. And so every surgery, it's, this is what you did right, which they didn't bother talking about what I did right very often. Most of the time it's just like, this is what you could have done better. This is how you could be better. This is what you should do the next time. And so for years of training, you are getting direct feedback and evaluation. And then what we do day in, day out is the same stuff. So after you've done a couple hundred surgeries, and then after you have a couple thousand surgeries, you get to the point where your skill level is at a high enough level. But there are certain things that I will send out to people. So there's this case I had recently, young 38-year-old patient that had a really aggressive cancer around her eye in what we call the orbit, the bones and the tissue around the eye. So she had this aggressive tumor. And I felt capable of doing the surgery, but she needed a whole team for radiation, for chemotherapy, like support staff, psychiatry. I referred her to an academic center where they do cancer. Um, you know, it was a cancer institution just because I felt like she'd be better served there. So there's certain things that I just don't do often enough that I think I'm your best shut, like best option. But because I know what I'm really good at and what's not really something I do in day in, day out, I'm able to adequately send people where they're supposed to be. So that's a really long winded way to say, no, I don't have imposter syndrome because I was trained really well. That's because like with every step, it's almost like validation built in to every step because there's so many stop points. Your stop, we're going to test to make sure you can go forward, go forward, go but forward. Then it's surprising. Have you listened to the Dr. Death podcast? Or watch the uh, miniseries? No. Okay. So that is where the medical system failed. The residency training program let this doctor out without adequate training. He was getting himself into trouble, not do knowing what he was doing, really harming and hurting people. And so you're supposed to do thousands of surgery through your, through your training. Thousands. And this doctor had done 70. 70 in a seven-year re like residency. So he was doing on average Less 10 surgeries a week. I mean, a, a, a year. year. I was doing 10 to 20 surgeries a week with direct observation and with everything else. So the doctor death thing was really crazy because he was harming people in a really significant way. But the medical training system, the people that graduated him, should have never graduated somebody that didn't have that many surgeries under his belt. It was hard once you're out. It's, it's really hard to catch a bad doctor. Um, it takes a while because sometimes it's just the data's not there. If they're harming people, 
they, they go to different multiple surgery centers. Maybe sometimes you're not catching that there's a pattern of mistakes or complications. They all have ways to try to track it, but the full picture might take a while. How do you, how do you maintain humility then? Like the, the example of the patient that you referred to a, a, a cancer team that, cause I, I'm sure there's some doctors that maybe their ego is really big and maybe would perhaps want to take on everything and feel like, no, I, I know I've trained, I've done this, but you obviously need, how do you know to live within your limits? So I don't think you can ever stop learning as a physician or a surgeon. I read the medical literature. I stay up to date on what's new, what's not new, different techniques that people are using. I go to the medical conferences, see what people are doing. So you can gauge yourself based on what's currently going on. But I think to, I think you're right though. Like if you have your egos involved in it, I think you would maybe not refer things as quickly or as easily because you might assume that those other doctors that you're referring to would say, oh, I don't know why this guy can't do this himself, or why would this doctor refer this patient? It's very straightforward. So I, I do think there could be an ego thing that might make you not want to refer. You can catch that in your doctor if they push back on getting a second opinion. Yeah, and most doctors shouldn't really be that upset if you want a second opinion, because yeah. if they're confident in what they're doing and they think it's the right treatment plan, then they shouldn't ever kick back against a second opinion. The other thing though, is like, there are times though where I've caught myself not necessarily doing things that I shouldn't have, but sometimes you get the sense from a patient that they're after something that's not quite feasible. So I do cosmetic surgery as well. So some people just have unrealistic expectations of the things that you can do for them. So I, I had one patient one time, um, this was during my training, but I won't say when, trying to protect a little bit of patient identity. But this patient came in. I got the sense that she was after something that wasn't really, she didn't have, she didn't have realistic expectations. So I thought we should pass on that surgery. And then we ended up doing the surgery. But one of my mentors thought that he could give him the results that the patient wanted. And then that patient was unhappy for weeks up to months. I forget how long, how far along it was, but it was pretty far down the line that we were trying to figure out why she was unhappy. And she pulled out a picture of a celebrity and said, I wanted my eyes to look like this person's. And that's why she was upset. Not because the surgery went poorly or because she had scars or anything. Objectively, she looked really good but she had these expectations that we couldn't match. And I found myself not quite in that exact situation, but getting those senses that maybe it's not gonna go the way I want it to go, or these people have expectations that I don't think I can match. But then it's really difficult because I think, well not even think, I know that I'm capable of doing the surgery well and doing a good job, but then I don't know how to explain to a patient that wants something that I do all the time, that I feel really confident in my abilities to do, but I just get a sense that it's based on who they are, what they're after, that it's not necessarily um, going to be the outcome that they want. So as like the younger generation has said, uh, the vibes are off. Like, how do you tell a patient the vibes are off? Like, yes, I do the surgery you want. Yes, I do it all the time. I don't have a good reason why I don't think I should be your surgeon, but I get this sense that maybe I'm not the right doctor for you. Have you, have you said that to patients before? Um, so far, I haven't come up with a good way to do it so very still, well. Still working it out, like how to, how to phrase that. 
Like, so it, it's been I think how easier. you just phrased it was really good. <laughs> like, I think I that would be that'd be fair. I'd be like, and, and you could change it to like, look, I I want to do the best I can for you. I want I want you to be happy, but in order to do that, I need to make sure we're on the same page and and that I'm making the right recommendations for you. You know that that sort of thing. But that's you know it's it's hard to do, and it's hard with like managing expectations is something you run into in any field. Like I you know I run into that mm-hmm. all the time too, and you've got to just. You can, sadly, it's usually learning from experience. Like, oh, I didn't, like, I did what I was supposed to do, but the customer had this whole other idea of how things were going to go. Mm-hmm. Okay, lesson mm-hmm. learned next time that I'm in that situation, then I'll, I'll give them the whole spiel and let them know, like, yeah, yeah. this is okay. Yeah, you're not going to look like celebrity, whoever. <laughs> it's not exactly. It's not, that's not how this works. Like, be real. So I've been really good in my career when I know, when I can figure out what their expectations are and I know they're not reasonable. So some people will come in and they'll show me what they want. And I say, one, like what you're asking for is not really feasible, or they'll want me to move their eyelid like a half of a millimeter. And I say, you know, there's error rates in surgery. If we move something like the plus minus, like where it ends up is about a half of a millimeter. And so if I move it a half a millimeter, and I'm, I nail it, then I'm a hero. But the chances are, like, if we look at it, really, like, I can move it a half millimeter too far. I could move it, and then it scars in and is the same position that it used to be. And now you have a scar. So if I, if I can find out beforehand what their real expectations are, then I've been able to say, I just don't think that's feasible, or I don't think I'm the right surgeon for you. And so that's been really easy. When they just say, hey, I want this surgery. I know you do a good job. I've seen your work. I want surgery with you. And then I can't determine that what their real expectations are. That's when I've like, but there's always a sense, you know, like you have a sense that just, it's not quite right, but you can't put your finger on why. So that's what I'm trying to get better at, but I'm having a hard time verbalizing it. But like you said, maybe the way I said, it's just fine Just say, (laughs) I don't think this is the right fit. I mean, the, I think it's a misnomer. A lot of people are very passionate about their job. I think a lot of people enjoy their job and it pays, you know, and they find most days are fine. 50% of days are fine. 50% of days are tolerable. Um, but the passion, like I don't have a passion, a burning passion for a lot of the stuff I do every day, you know, not enough of a passion to drive me through that many years of schooling. Well, the other thing too, though, is I don't like when people say if you're if you you know do what you love, you won't work a day of your life. So I spent a long time getting to the career that I love and doing what I love, but it still comes with a lot of things I don't love. I still have to get on the phone and argue with insurance companies. I have to have meetings. There's HR issues. I have to do all of my documentation. I have to do all my notes, bill it correctly. So there's like so many things around patient care that are just a slog that just you have to do it. And it's not fun. I enjoy interacting with my patients directly when I'm talking to them, when I'm in the clinic with them, I love doing their surgeries, but about 75% of my time is still notes, paperwork, HR, running a small business, doing all the, you know, the payroll stuff. So that stuff, it just, it's part of the job. So even if you're passionate about an aspect of your job or you do what you love, there's still so many parts of a job that just 
it's worked. I mean, like, there's just no way to say that other than that, it's worked. You, you have to show up your work, but then that gives me the opportunity to spend time with my family, take some vacations. And I'm lucky that there's a lot of aspects about my work that I do love. What's the most tedious part or the, the part that you loathe about your, your job? Loathe is so, a heavy word. Maybe I should use it. No, but lo- loathe. Some. there's some things that I loathe. So the, the thing I loathe probably the most, that's just a day-to-day thing, is all of the documentation that has nothing to do with taking care of people. It has everything to do with uh, government regulation and insurance requirements. So that's the main thing. It's just, I have to document a certain number of things. I have to say how much time I spent. I need to code things in the right way so that insurance companies don't fight back or that they cover your surgery. I have to be just aware of all these things. If it was just me and a patient, I could find out what's important, what's meaningful. I could come up with a plan. We could just have so much more interaction face-to-face. It'd be a better experience for everybody. But I spend so much time just on the computer and the laptop, which just takes me away from the parts of the job I love. Yeah, I, there's, there's that element to any job. In sales, it's like all the all the forecasting, all the notes and crap that's just, it's not fun, but it's necessary. And you've got to like, I think part of that's just the fact that you've got to answer to someone that you don't have control. You don't have autonomy of, of your day that mm-hmm. like, and as hard as for you, as hard as you work that you, you ain't, it's not up to you. You don't get to call the shots really. You get a fight with insurance, with government policy, whatever, yeah. but that's just, you know, that's part of any job, I guess. Right. Yeah. And initially the people that you, you asked at the very beginning of us recording, you know, when patients like want to fight with me or say, I, I saw this online or I read this or I did my research on some level, I can understand that a little bit better because people are just concerned about their health, their well-being. They want to make the right choice. They have their doubts. That bugs me sometimes, but it bugs me more when insurance companies do it. So I prescribe a certain medication and then they say, we don't cover that medication. What alternative do you want? As if my medical judgment of what's appropriate in that situation doesn't matter. Or when I say this surgery is necessary for these reasons and they say, no, and then they, if they give me denial, the only way to come out of that is to do a peer-to-peer. And then initially a peer-to-peer with insurance companies can be just another doctor, a nurse practitioner, a PA that evaluates the, the application. And then I talk to them, but they don't necessarily do what I do. So then I have to talk to another person and then they tell me why the insurance company doesn't want to let me do what I think is medically necessary. And then I can ask for a true peer that does what I do. And then I can talk to somebody that's at least at my same level. But then even still, they say, yeah, I get what you're saying. But the uh, insurance policy, the way it's written, just won't cover that. So as much as I dislike when patients are kind of like argumentative, I at least understand that they're doing it because they're scared or they just are uncertain. But with the insurance companies, they are a complete for-profit and not everybody's for profits in a bad gig. Like I'm in private practice, I'm for profit. But for them, the shareholders and the profit is number one. They have record breaking quarters, quarter after quarter, and they're making so much money. And I have to fight with them. And they have, at the first level, they have no medical training. And they just say, nope, we don't approve that. 
and then I have to fight my way up the line. And even still, they may just not approve it just because they don't have to. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you break your jaw, they're going to say, oh, that's cosmetic. Yeah. Like, you can no, still this chew, isn't, right? This isn't, <laughs> I'm not doing this because it's fun. This isn't like a weight loss thing or like a, just to fix that jawline. It's because I, yeah, my mom had that. She broke her jaw and like had to fight with insurance and it was a pain and it's just. Yeah. Well, we fought it yeah. from the patient side one time. Ashley got injured and we went to the hospital and she just happened to be pregnant at the time that she was injured. And so we were at the hospital and then they coded everything as pregnancy related, which it wasn't. And so insurance refused to cover it because it was pregnancy related that our insurance didn't cover, but she was there for an injury that had nothing to do with the pregnancy. It's there for stitches. And so, but it, it took us <laughs> a year of fighting insurance companies. Well, the baby would have popped out if you hadn't gotten those stitches. Yeah, right? <laughs> if the cut on my foot was not stitched, just so. Yeah, and so we, we fought for a year, and then instead of like fixing the coding and doing everything the way it was supposed to be, the hospital ended up just eventually just writing it off and just saying, well, okay, we'll write off your bill. And I'm like, no, like, you can bill it appropriately and it should get paid, but they just, everybody got sick of fighting that they just eventually gave up. So keep fighting people because eventually <laughs> sometimes they give up depending on how yeah. big the bill is. That's, that, and that's <laughs> the problem with our, with the insurance racket. Cause it is a racket. It's not. Yeah. I mean, it, and that's, that's like a larger, like pretty much any corporation yeah. cares mostly about profits and shareholders and, like one percent of people, and not the other ninety-nine. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm glad yeah, I you. It. I'm glad you listen. I'm glad you came on. Hi, this is Doctor Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.